John chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 9. Let me uh, start reading, get us back into context. I'll start in verse 4, we'll read down to verse 8 and then pick up here in verse 9. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. All right, so we've been dealing for quite a while with First John uh, as he deals with the problem of uh, an early form of Gnosticism within the congregation. Specifically, we would call them the Docetists. They are the ones that believed... Uh, that Jesus didn't have a physical body, uh, that He didn't physically die on the cross, therefore He didn't shed literally physical blood. Many of the unusual things that they believe are somewhat similar in some regard to what some of the preterists believe and teach today. He is coming back and actually clarifying that Jesus did, did come in the flesh, that He did live a sinless life, uh, he's pointing out the difference between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of Satan. Those that believe God and those that are faithful are the children of God. Those that do not and specifically believe their word, the inspired word, uh, also are not of God. Now, as we pick up here in verse 9, he says, In this was manifested, to find out in this what he's talking about, we're going to have to go back to the previous verse. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. All right. We learn actually a number of things as we begin to look here at just this one passage. Uh, and some of, some of what is actually in this passage actually refutes some common misteachings, even some that are prominent today. What's some of the things we learn? First, God's love for man exists. How many of you guys have ever heard somebody, specifically the atheists and others, will say, there is no such thing as a loving God. There cannot be a loving God because if there was a loving God, you wouldn't have, have, you wouldn't have all the evil things taking place in this world. They say, if you had a loving God, He wouldn't allow this. How many of you have ever heard that argument? That is a common... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the other thing we can point out as we say that with our children. Our children have free will. Uh, we, try to, we try to guide them and direct them and we'll tell them, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, but we can tell them not to do something and they can go out and do it anyways. Don't the Scriptures tell us certain things we should do and should not do, and yet we'll, man goes out and does whatever he wants? It's the same way with children. Uh, children are, are usually tried to be protected by their parent, uh, but children have that right to go do whatever they want. They can, they can disobey and go do whatever they want. Same thing with the Scriptures. We've been told what we should 
and oftentimes what we should not do, but man has free will. So that atheistic argument, which you hear in virtually all debates, is you can prove there is no loving God because if there was a loving God, he would not allow these things to take place. The problem with that is, is for example, uh, the gentleman at our workplace who, who got shot, that decision came about, or that, that occurred because he made the decision to be in Kalamazoo doing something that he shouldn't have done, and therefore he was placed in a position where he ended up getting killed. That's not God being an evil person killing him, that's him making a bad decision. Yeah. Yeah, and they would stone one to save the rest. And that sounds pretty harsh that you would kill one child to save the rest, but uh, that was a punishment. But from the very beginning, we see that God's love for man existed. It existed from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And again, you find them doing what they want, not what they were told. Uh, however, you still see the love of God through, throughout that entire account. That's one of the things we learn here in this passage. Number two, God's love has been manifested and or made known. Now, we're going to learn specifically how that took place, but again, you have a lot of people say there is no love in God. He has never shown his, he's never shown his love to me. You hear people say stuff like that. God's never shown his love to me. What's he done for me lately, right? Is that same, huh? That's exactly right. It was revealed in the gift of God's Son. So his love has always existed. And again, you go back to the Old Testament, you see his love has always existed. Yet he talks about the extent of his love in the fact that he's going to provide a redeemer. Job understood that. He knew there was a redeemer coming. They lived under a totally different system under the Old Testament system. They were sacrificing uh, the blood of bulls and goats, but that couldn't solve the sin problem. And they did this year after year after year. They still had a conscience issue because their sins were never actually remitted. They couldn't be remitted because the blood of bulls and goats can't do that. However, there was a son who was going to be given. Uh, and think about this. I mean, they're having an issue in the congregation with docetists who don't believe he literally shed his blood. But the whole purpose of the Old Testament, as we look at the types and antitypes, was showing the shedding of blood, yet the blood of the animals, the bulls and the goats, wasn't perfect. It couldn't deal with the sin problem. So Jesus' son was given. Why? So he could shed his literal blood to deal with the sin problem. But what do the, docet what do the docetists believe? He didn't shed his literal blood because he doesn't even have a literal body. Can you understand why John would point this out as he's dealing with the fact there in that congregation? You got some saying he didn't have a physical body, he didn't shed his, his literal blood. Well, he doesn't talk about the Old Testament, he doesn't talk about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but that's all of this scene in God's love being, being played out. Oh, about the gift of God's Son? Well, but love, love, yeah. God, love God. If you want to change God's Word, and you want to change God's, what He calls His church, then you don't get with them people right now. They're not, and they don't get that. And, and where else I would go with it, too, is, is I think most of these de denominational groups would say, oh, we believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, but they have no idea how to access it. How do we access the blood of Christ? Baptism, Romans 6, 3, and 4, right? It's how we get into Christ, Galatians 3, 26, and 27. So I agree with you 100%. And if you were to say that to them, they, they, don't, they literally could not comprehend. What you just said, Larry, is so deep 
they would never grasp it. They don't, have, they don't have the biblical knowledge you have, and so if you were to say that, they would be totally lost. Like, I knew exactly what you meant. Uh, it, it's no wonder when we have conversation oftentimes with people who are in the denominational world that they have no idea what it is that we're actually talking about. Because they can't summarize the Old Testament and the sacrifices and the... I think a lot of them really are good-hearted people that just have, they've unfortunately, I mean, take, take Jerry and me. Jerry, I think you probably, I didn't know you before you were a Christian, but my guess is you were probably as sincere regarding religious things then, yet your belief then is nowhere near what it is now. And you'd been deceived, just like me. My parents taught me stuff that was not right, and the answer was, well, that's how we do it, we're Catholics. And you got to wonder how many people. In I'll grab you, Jerry. Yeah. It was hard for me, you know, in certain areas to break what I'd always been taught because everything I read, I viewed it through the lens of whatever denomination I was taught. And it's hard for people to come out of that. And that's, I mean, really, that's with, let's use another example. Well, go ahead, Jerry. I mean, think about why, pe why are people racists? You've got people who do not like, you've got people that are racist against Caucasians, they're racist against African Americans, people from Mexico, whatever country you want to list. And if you don't ever know people like that, or you've never met those people, and you've been told, well, they're, well, think, how in the world did Hitler, how did he get an entire country to believe that Jewish people were were evil and were the, basically, in essence, the scum of the earth. They were beyond, they were be, below even the animal level. You say something often enough, you can get people to believe it. I mean, it's scary. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And I, I would say that, I mean, you don't see that, you do, you do not see that in little children. When they're little, they don't, even, they don't even notice color, right? That's always something that's taught. You don't find that with 
with young children. Uh, you find that eventually as they get older and they've been taught, I don't like that person because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity or the country they came from. So again, they've been taught something and it's the same thing that you have with, with religious groups. So you've got God's love does exist. We can go back to the very beginning and see it. We can actually see it uh, in the way that he did make atonement possible through the law of, uh, under the law of Moses. However, uh, it, that was never to be the end goal and the way for man ultimately to be saved. And we'll, we've spent some time on this, but every person that was ever saved, even the Jew that lived under the law of Moses, was saved through the blood of Christ. They were looking forward to the fact a Redeemer was coming, but their sins could never have been forgiven without the blood of Christ being shed. So they may have lived and died as a Jew. However, the only way that sins could be forgiven ultimately was for Jesus to shed His blood. So that was, they, they were waiting on a Redeemer, God's Son. And then we find the purpose of this, this gift was that we might live through Him. That ties in really with what I just said, but then more specifically for those that actually were alive at the time of his ministry or after, uh, to live through him, specifically through the faith. Point four right here, really you have a couple of different false teachings that this kind of refutes. It refutes the false teaching of many different creeds, of many different religious groups, that teach God was angry with man, and that Jesus came to appease the wrath of a vengeful God. Uh, that He came to deal with a sin problem, uh, but is this type of an idea specifically tied in with Calvinism? Uh, one of the most famous ser sermons, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the sermon, was it In the Hands of an Angry God? And he, it's a Calvinistic uh, sermon. One of the most famous, uh, from, written or actually uh, preached by a Puritan. Uh, but again, it's kind of based on this same idea. Is, does God have wrath? Yes. Is God a vengeful God? Well, He always warns, let me say this, He always warns before He wounds. You never find ever in the Old Testament where when the Jews were unfaithful, God just put the hammer down on them, right? Now, don't get me wrong. They were punished multiple times. They were sent into Babylon. They had all different types of issues that they, consequences they dealt with. But he always warns before he wounds, right? He sent prophets, try and draw them back. And for a while they would repent and then apostatize. And that cycle went over and over again. He sent judges, prophets. You had very godly kings who tried to bring the nations back. You had horrible kings that didn't. That cycle went on and on, but they were always warned before they were ever punished. Uh, that's, that does not give me the idea of a wrathful, vengeful, hateful God. Somebody who is full of wrath and hate doesn't normally warn you, hey, this isn't in your best interest, you need to quit doing this. It's judgment, yeah. And unfortunately, judgment is going to carry out in vengeance and blessings. Yep. Vengeance is, his, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, unfortunately, the same, it's kind of like the idea of sun. The same sun that melts butter 
hardens clay, right? There's two different outcomes. Same thing with judgment. The judgment actually should be, if everyone was faithful, the, the judgment 100% would all be good, wouldn't it? Because everybody would be judged as faithful and they go to heaven. But not everybody is good. So some people are going to face his, his judgment seen as vengeance, where others will face the same judgment, and theirs is going to be blessing. Mm-hmm. We, we don't want vengeance on us from others. Same thing as we shouldn't be doing that to others because they may have the opportunity to repent and be going to heaven with us. I mean, any one of us who's in sin right now could repent this very day and the problem is dealt with, right? Um, that's not to say you may not have conse- earthly co- consequences, uh, but the problem could be dealt with spiritually and you're not going to have to face that vengeance. That, again, is another mis- misunderstanding within the churches of Christ where many say, well, you guys teach a gospel that's never obtainable because you guys teach you have to be 100% faithful and only those who are 100% faithful go to heaven. I've never taught that. I don't know anybody, uh, I don't know any faithful ministers that teach that or believe that. We teach the goal is to be 100% faithful, but we will, we will not achieve that goal. Uh, we know all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We will sin, yet we can repent of that sin. And when we do, we're again washed clean, clean through the blood of Christ, and we're found righteous in His sight. But you, yeah, you certainly have to mean it. You have to show fruit. Fruits of repentance. So that idea where we get accused oftentimes, well, you teach a gospel that's never attainable. No, I... Matter of fact, I just teach that we've been extremely blessed through the gospel and that we know we'll mess up, but we can repent of that and again be found faithful. So number, point number four refutes that. Point number four is also proof that we did not first receive God's love as a consequence of the death of Christ. Let me pause. God's love existed long before the death of Christ. He literally chose Israel as His chosen nation. He promised, it. he promised them if they would do this, He would bless them. So His love existed long before that. You've got some that teach the, really the love of God never existed before Christ. Those are the same people that teach the Old Testament is a vengeful God, a very hateful God, and the New Testament is a God of love. He's always been a God of love, right? There's no difference between... In the Old Testament, you see that vengeance or that wrath being played out as He dealt with them, but you're going to see it again with the New Testament Christian or those that live now who are not faithful. That, that same wrath will come, right? Even for them. thought I heard somebody say something. So the, the love of God didn't start with the death of Christ. It existed long before that. Uh, but that the sending, of, the sending of the Son resulted from that love which already existed. Go back to Genesis 3.15. He is already at that point. Really, three chapters in, already saying, he's pointing to the fact that his son's coming. The Redeemer is coming, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So all the, the other sacrifices that they had under Judaism, that was really the love of God, too, right? Mm-hmm. You're basically sacrificing for God, and then he's carrying you over to the next time. Some people, yeah, it's, it's a good way to explain it, really, that it rolled over. Your sins were never forgiven. Matter of fact, Paul says basically... If, if those sacrifices were sufficient, they wouldn't have had conscience problem year after year after year, knowing they had to go back and re-sacrifice to deal with their sin. The difference is, is a Christian can sin, they can repent of that, and if they, like, like uh, Larry said, if you honestly mean that and you show fruits of repentance, you don't, have to, you don't have to 
carry the burden of that sin on your conscience anymore, right? But the Jews were dealing with it year after year after year, coming back and re-sacrificing, still having that conscience issue. Or a Christian doesn't have to. Uh, that's because Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice. I'll grab you a second, Larry. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about this. This is, it, this is pretty deep. God used Babylon to punish the Jews. Now, the Babylonians made their own decision to come in and to take the Jews captive. But God used Babylon to punish those Jews. And then he punished Babylon for what they did to the Jews. And people say, well, it's God's fault that that the Babylonians came in and took them captivity, how could he punish them? God didn't force them to do that. Every man has free will. He used, he used them, he allowed them, let me, let me phrase it differently. He allowed the Babylonians to punish these Jews, and it was told in advance this was going to happen. You're going to go into captivity because of your guys' uh, idol worship and all the things that you've done. You're going to pay the consequence at the hand of the Babylonians. And then when the Babylonians chose to do that, and they did punish the uh, the Jews, God in turn later punished the Babylonians. I see a little bit of irony in that myself. But people will say, well, how could you punish them? God did it. God didn't make them do it. They had their own choice to come in and to do that. God allowed them to punish those Jews, and he knew in advance it would happen. Yeah, and imagine if, imagine if you were the one that he asked to do that. How many of you guys would be willing to sacrifice your, your only child, your, the heir? I don't even want to... I would hope I would make that right decision, but I, don't, I can't even place myself in that, in that position. And the, thought, and the thought of giving up your own child is, is a pretty hard thing to do, isn't it? And yet, isn't that exactly what God did? Yeah. Verse 9 continued. Let's go over to Romans 5.8. <clears throat> but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now we could go back and read it's made pretty clear that even for a good man, very few would die. But for an unrighteous man, not many people are willing to die for an unrighteous man, right? Christ was willing to give himself, even though we were sinners. Uh, Christ, we could look at a number of verses. Uh, I got it on there. Sometimes I don't remember where my notes go. So Christ gave himself for all men. Right? Christ allowed himself, uh, Christ shed his blood so that all men have the opportunity to be saved. Not all men will be saved through him, but all men have the opportunity. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, that's pretty important, but have everlasting life. The word 
believe there, pastuo, means to understand it and to do it. It's more than just a mental ascent of, oh, he's Jesus. Unfortunately, yes. Verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Will the world, though, however, be condemned because they reject Christ? Well, yes, but that's because it comes back up here to this word. Whoever believes in Him is not going to be condemned. Whoever does not believe in Him will perish and will be condemned. Everybody has the same opportunity to be saved. Uh, and that's through faithful uh, belief and carrying out the action of being faithful to God. If you do that, you will not be condemned. You will be saved. Let's look at this word here, only begotten. Uh, this is kind of important just for a couple of groups in particular. Actually, it'll, it, really for a few things. The word uh, monogene, the word translated only begotten, signifies the only one of its kind to exist. Okay? There was never a Savior before Christ, and there will never be another Savior after Christ. And you may say, oh, everybody knows that. The Catholics don't know that. The Catholics teach that Mary is a co-redemptress, right? They teach you can pray to Mary. They, they teach you can be saved through Mary. Again, no. How many have heard the name Maitreya? That name, the first time I heard that name was in about 2000. It's 20 years ago. At that time, when I heard the name Maitreya, uh, it was, it was un, unbe unbeknownst to me, and I knew nothing about it, and the, the movement had not really caught on. Maitreya is now caught on pretty much worldwide, and the guy is pretty smart. Because if I was going to fake being the Messiah or a, or a religious leader, this is how I would do it. Maitreya, you guys can type on the internet and find this guy, he goes around and says, I am Jesus, I am Buddha, and I am Muhammad. I am all three. So who is he appealing to? Which religious groups virtually? Every one of them. He's saying, I am all three wrapped up in one. He's saying all three of them were of God. Uh, I am the reincarnation of all three. And so he, he's, actually really, he's really actually gained a lot of speed uh, because in doing that, he's not, he's not saying Catholics are wrong or uh, Christians are wrong. He's not saying Muslims are wrong. He's not saying Buddhists are wrong. He's saying all of those are all different paths to get to heaven, and I am the reincarnation of all of those. He, this guy is going to major cities and selling out arenas. You, if you've never heard of his, his name, uh, I, I almost hate for you guys to go look people up like this, but like I said, the first time I heard of the guy was about 2000. Uh, I wasn't a Christian then, but I was kind of reading and dabbling a little bit and trying to learn a little bit, uh, and I was kind of intrigued by this guy. Is he the only one going around telling people stuff like this? No. I mean, what, the congregation down the road here is saying they got apostles in the building. Uh, so there's a lot of groups who are teaching salvation through men or through other manners. Oprah? Oprah says it doesn't matter what you believe. There's many roads to heaven, right? They're, they're all different roads, and, you know, you can choose whichever one you want. Well, that's not, that's not the case either. In my personal opinion, she's crazy. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. It may be money, but I think Joel Osteen's money. I think Oprah's just crazy. 
Yeah, she, oh, I guess all of them are appealing to the masses. Oh, I know. Uh, similarly, how many of you guys get uh, ads tailored to your likes on Facebook and stuff like that? I shouldn't even say this out loud. Yesterday, I was looking through Facebook, and I had like <laughs> I had like two or three books in a row that popped up, and they were they were all Joel Olstein. <laughs> guys, I do not go look at Joel Olstein stuff, but I must have had three books in a row or whatever for Joel Olstein stuff. It does, unfortunately. But there are groups that teach there are other ways. Catholics teach Mary is a co-redemptress. You've got guys like Maitreya. You've got guys teaching they... Well, you've got guys actually here. Uh, Branch Davidians, uh, what's his name, down in Waco? Said he was Jesus himself. David, David uh, Koresh. So those types of things happen. You've got cults literally where people are saying they are Jesus or the reincarnation of Jesus or they are a prophet of Jesus. So again, there's just one Messiah that was always only being, it was always, always pro prophesied only of one Redeemer, uh, and that's all we ever find. Yeah, one gospel. And that's, I mean, that's what John, John literally, I was actually watching a TV show the other day, and somebody said um, something about Antichrist, and they said, well, there can only be one Antichrist, there's only one Christ. Ah, that's not what John said. John said there are many antichrists, right? And he literally is calling them out. These are antichrists. They're opposed to Christ. Majority of the world, you start talking about an antichrist, they're all premillennial. They're all looking for that one guy, right? Uh, it's Obama. It's Trump. It's the Pope. It varies every four years. The next president's always the next antichrist. So uh, and that's been going on ever since I can remember. All who are saved are saved through Christ. As Larry said, that is all th from obedience to the same gospel. There's not multiple gospels. The word gospel, euangelion, simply meaning good news. There's only one good news uh, of, of the New Testament and Jesus' ministry and His death and the teaching for Christians. And all people are saved in the same way. Rejects the idea of... I did put his name on here. Sometimes I don't remember. Guys, I usually work a few weeks ahead on my notes, so sometimes I don't remember where my mind's going. Rejects the idea of salvation through any other, such as Mary, Maitreya, Universalism, which is becoming very prominent, right? Everybody's going to be saved. They're all just on different paths. Uh, no, that's not what we find in the Scriptures. Saved from wrath through Him. Again, Romans 5.9. All right, let's go to verse 10. We might cover more than three slides. Herein is love. Well, we're going to have to go back and figure out what exactly is that word herein. It refers to the previous passage. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've already dealt with this word propitiation here in 1 John once. Here we see it again. So what's he talking about herein? That's referring back to the gift of the Son. How do we know that uh, we have the love of God? Well, herein is love. What are you talking about? The gift of the Son. He literally sent His Son to die for us. 
That's love right there. That's a love that, can, that cannot fully even really be comprehended or understood. We can understand it on a level, but not completely on that level. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. There you go. That ties right back into what John's saying. Herein is love, right? After that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing, notice this, by the washing of regeneration. To regenerate something is to make alive again. To make something that was dead now alive. Before we were Christians, we were dead and didn't even know it. And yet we were made alive through Christ. Was it anything we did by our own merit? Could, I, could any one of us do something to earn the mercy of God? No. We could be faithful, but even before that, we all had already sinned. And what's the consequence of sin? Death. God doesn't owe any one of us anything. The very fact that any one of us could be saved is only by His mercy. Now, does that negate the fact that I have to be faithful? Mercy never negates faithfulness, right? My children could go out and rob a bank after I've told them not to go rob a bank, uh, and I could give them mercy, but does that negate faithfulness or obedience to the law? No, there's still going to be consequences. Uh, I could give them mercy, but there's still going to be consequences. Uh, God, there's nobody ever who was saved solely by mercy without repentance. Nowhere. No one in the Old Testament, there was no unfaithful person in the Old Testament who was ever just saved by God's mercy who never had repentance because of anything they'd done wrong. I mean, take David, for example. A, a man after God's own heart, but yet we look at some of the things David had done. But how many of us can say, I did things as bad or equally worthy of punishment, and yet I'm not that person anymore? Like David. David, uh, the, the fact that he would allow himself to succumb to that is, is horrible. At least he corrected that. He eventually had the mercy of God, but not without repentance. I'll grab you in a second. Mm-hmm. His people are the ones that did his will. Now, did they do things that weren't correct? Yes, they did. They did. But then they always repented. We see that from time and time again in the Old Testament. And really in the New Testament, too, we're pleading for us to repent. Mm-hmm. Time and time again. The, the nation of Israel, was they were told as a nation to repent. It wasn't just... I mean, there were individuals who were told to repent. Uh, when Nathan came to David and so forth, but the nation as a whole was oftentimes told to repent. A good example is when Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were two criminals hanging beside him, but he didn't have mercy on both of them. He mm -mm. had mercy on the one side. Yeah. One's mocking, one's mocking the Savior, and the other one's like, We deserve to be up here. This man did nothing. I mean, he's acknowledging, Yeah, I'm a sinner. This guy's not, but we are, and look what they're doing to him. The washing of regeneration. So you hear, how many of you have ever heard some of uh, you guys, you members of the churches of Christ are water dogs. All you guys believe in is, is getting people wet, and you think that if you get them wet, that saves them. 
No, but I do believe in the washing of regeneration, right? I do believe in being buried with Christ and raising up a new man. That's the washing, the waters of, of uh, regeneration, the washing of regeneration. That's really what we read there in uh, John chapter 3 as he's talking with Nicodemus, right? Being born of water and of the Spirit. That's the washing of regeneration. I'm not a water dog. I don't just believe water saves people. Uh, if anybody was a water dog, guys, I think it would be the Catholics. Uh, how many of you guys ever seen the, the priest walking through going and throwing water all over people? And what do they believe? It's holy water, right? Just, do, just get the holy water, you're good to go. I don't believe that. I don't teach that. I've never, I've never believed that as a, as a Christian. If anybody's a water dog, I'd say the Catholics are closer to water dogs than the members of the churches of Christ. Uh, we believe in being immersed in water for the remission of sins and becoming a new man, new creation in Christ. But that's a one-time thing. Then from that point on, we're continually cleansed through the blood by repentance, right? thought I saw a hand go up. So I do believe in the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other topic we probably don't have time to cover right there. As a matter of fact, we're going to get into a couple of verses here that are clearly misused. The gift of God's Son was the highest possible manifestation of love possible. He had already shown the Jews multiple times he loved them. Go ahead, Larry. Oh, yeah. Oh, the lady caught in adultery? Yeah. I've often wondered what he was writing in the sand. When Jesus stooped over and was writing in the sand and then said, whichever one of you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. I'm wondering, was he writing their sins down? I don't know what he was writing in the sand, but... He said he didn't, she, he didn't condemn her. Go and sin no more. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't give her a free pass. He didn't say, oh, well, I'm just going to give you mercy. You're good to go. Yeah, go and sin no more. You had God's love long before Christ. However, this, the gift of God's Son was the highest possible manifestation of love possible. Why? Because through that we have the plan of redemption and salvation is only possible through Christ. The, the plan of redemption, you cannot separate through salvation through Christ. The plan of redemption is how we get into Christ. And when we get into Christ and we contact the blood, that's where salvation is even made possible. But none of that could have ever happened. As a matter of fact, that's what the Jews were waiting on, right? The blood that they were using of bulls and, and goats, it wasn't sufficient. They were waiting on the Messiah. Why? Well, it's the plan of redemption and salvation only possible through Him, through His blood. And yet, you've got people in this congregation that John's dealing with, who are docetists, who do not believe Jesus shed his physical blood. I mean, we touched on this last week. I said, you, you have people that teach false doctrine, like the 80-70 guys. When they first started teaching that, they were like, hey, this is not, this isn't a, any type of a, uh, a doctrinal issue we should be debating. We can both believe this. There's n this is just a difference of opinion on a small subject. It's not a big deal until you go study the 80-70 doctrine. And again, they don't believe Jesus shed his, his literal blood. For the, If you go back and start studying some of the stuff they believe, it is a big deal. These guys don't believe Jesus, these docetists, don't believe Jesus shed his blood on the cross because they don't believe he had a physical body. Is that a big deal? 
Could you have sins remitted without the physical blood? No. This is a big deal. This is a huge... Yeah, it, very, yeah, exactly. This. I'm wondering, thinking you're a slide ahead of me, Larry. <laughs> you're a couple of slides ahead of me. I know I put that verse in here last time I was looking through. The, uh, the congregation having some people saying, oh, he didn't have a physical body, and he didn't shed his physical blood. And they're saying, hey, the only difference between us is, is I think he had a physical body and you don't, or vice versa. It's not a big deal. It is, a big, it is a big deal. You needed the physical blood of Christ uh, so that we could have remission of sins, right? Same thing with the 8070 guys when they teach all of these different doctrines. Well, you believe he's coming back. You believe he's coming back personally, and we don't believe that. We believe he actually came back already in the form of the Roman government. But, hey, it's, that's a small issue. That's not like it's something we should be arguing over. Uh, yeah, it is. You're denying the return of Christ, the personable visible return of Christ. And they say, that's not a big deal. We shouldn't argue over it. Same thing, anytime you find, how about the music when it came into the church, right? It's not a big deal. Uh, we should worship Him in spirit and truth. And I mean, the main stuff, that's spirit and truth. This is just how we worship. It's not a big deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's not a fellowship issue. <laughs> of course it's a fellowship issue. Right? Ephesians 5, 9, uh, 5.19, Colossians 5.9, and Colossians 3.16. Uh, it's been a long day, you guys. That's the wrong verse. No, it's driving... I shouldn't even have to look this passage up. Did I say it right the first time and my brain's just telling me it's not right? Yes, I was right. Sorry, Ephesians 5.19, I was right. Um... I've been up since 5 o'clock this morning, guys. It's been a long day. Yeah, it always starts out as, oh, this isn't a fellowship issue. And I'm sure the docetists were saying this in the congregation. This is not a fellowship issue. Don't worry about this. Uh, let me summarize this up and we'll have to quit. God is love. We found that in verse 8. The love which God possesses has been revealed, which God possessed, typo. The, God, the love which God possessed has been revealed to us in the gift of His Son, the only begotten, verse 9. And this love was the result of no act on our part, but is the basis for the love that we now have for Him, verse 10. That's a summary of the three verses, actually pretty much what we just covered tonight. He's love. He revealed that love to us by giving us His Son. And that love wasn't the result of anything we did, but that's the basis for the love that we now have for God. Right? He loved me enough to send his son for me. That's a quick synopsis of the three verses. I kind of got close on how far I thought we'd get. All right, we will pick. And I continued it. Maybe we can finish real quick. Depends on how much I got on here. Sometimes I only put a verse or two. Nope, we're going to have to pick back up on this one. It's a whole slide. We'll pick up on 1 John 4. 1 John 4.10 uh, next week, and I will hand this over to Joe. Oh, to Jerry.